Now, it's time for the Cybersecurity News Bite with Jim Guckin. Cybersecurity News Bite episode number 75 for November 20th, 2023. RSA keys are extracted from signing errors? Shadowy hack for hire group behind a sprawling web of global cyber attacks. Over a dozen exploitable vulnerabilities found in AI and ML tools. And cybersecurity criminals exploit Gaza crisis with a fake charity. Welcome to another Cybersecurity News Bite. I am your host, Jim Guckin, and here are the security news stories from last week. I think you should be paying attention to this week. Uh, The first one is kind of a doozy, um, because for the longest time, uh, RSA RSA keys, the encryption algorithm, has been amazing. It's been held up. Um, But there's a particular version right now that has a fault that you should probably move to another encryption method if you're using it. At least if you believe the researchers, uh, Keegan Ryan, Hawaii He, Nadine Henninger, and um, George Arnold Sullivan. These are security researchers from California and Massachusetts. And they published a paper that they were able to extract RSA keys from signing errors and being able to figure out what the key really was. And these are naturally occurring errors um, from failed SSH secured shell connection attempts. Now, before I go into the story, and usually I just dive right in, but that's, you know, the teaser bit. Let me just go over a couple of definitions that kind of set the rest of the story up. So SSH is a cryptographic protocol used for securing communications. Um, It's widely used in remote system access, file transfers, and just general administration of your network. RSA is a public key cryptography system that's used in SSH for user authentication. It uses a private key and a secret key to decrypt communication. And, or I'm sorry, to encrypt in communication and a public shareable key to decrypt it. The third uh, thing here, which we haven't talked about as part of the teaser portion of this thing, is called the Chinese Remainder Theorem, CRT. And it's used with the RSA algorithm to lower the bit size for the public key, which speeds up the time to take that encrypted message and decrypt it. So, understanding all of this, the flaw exists in uh, the RSA using the CRT um, algorithm. And there's a fault in it, just the way it is. So when you are using processing power to compute the encryption algorithm, the signature, there is a ability to kind of find out what the signer's private key would look like just due to it. Um, getting an error back in a certain way in a certain set environment. Now, these are not something that happens all the time. It's very rare. So for an attacker to use this would have to be um, kind of a golden unicorn. Like it's, it's very rare, but 
theoretically can be done. And it's unavoidable. It's nothing you can patch. It can't be fixed. Uh, and this is just due to regular hardware flaws in the computation of those keys that it's required to send the encryption. Now, as I said, it doesn't impact all of RSA encryption algorithms. If you use RSA 1024 or SHA-512, these are not... Um, vulnerable to this kind of hack. And the reason is from people way more brilliant than I am is because it has something to do with the, the Chinese remainder theorem to cut that bit size down. And those two, the RSA 1024 and the SHA 512, the number of unknown bits in the hash is just way too big for someone to sit there and quickly or reliably be able to get the computational power that you need to be able to break those. Now, who knows down the line, but I'm hoping we get better encryption by the time that comes. But in the in that very rare case, very rare, if you're using RSA CRT, then I recommend you switch to another encryption algorithm, if you can, if it doesn't break business processes, but I recommend you change it just from that very, like, you know, maybe someone sits in your network for a long period of time and finally figures out how to get that key. It might be um, wise to change something that they can't at this time do easily. Now, this cryptographic, and you'd have to have someone who's a crypto, crypto, cryptographic expert, and I can barely say the word to begin with. But uh, for those who know, understand cryptograph E. Um, there's a similar problem that was known in earlier versions of TLS versions. And most organizations still are cleaning up the TLS uh, versions and making it 1.3. But older versions, 1.1 and 1.2, they had the same kind of flaw that they were able to figure out and spend some processing power to be able to break the keys. But in 1.3, they can't do that. Uh, and part of that they did was encrypting that initial handshake, which prevented passive eavesdroppers from reading the signatures and figuring out what they are. Uh, when TLS was made public, there was a lot out there that said SSH was still safe. And now, generally SSH is safe, but there is a small kink in the armor right now. So if you have the ability to change this, I recommend you go to one, a different, you know, algorithm if you can. Because, yeah, right now it's researchers, eventually hackers will, but as I said, it's, it's one of those perfect storm kind of things. But you never know. You, you don't want to be the first news story where the perfect storm happened and now you have to explain a breach to people. I, I know I don't want to be that first person. For our second story this week, this, this one to me was very fascinating because it's not, I don't want to lead, mislead you anywhere along. This is not a current, it is not a current thing, but this is only the stuff that is found out when people look back at internet history and things start being pierced, uh, pieced together. And this comes from Reuters. A Reuters journalist went through non-public internet records and they collected 
detailed data they could find on a group called Oppin, A-P-P-I-N, their operation and their clients. And they used multiple sources. They even had logs connected to the uh, My Commando site, which Appen used for um, clients to place their orders. You know, there was like a menu there breaking into emails, phones, computers, certain targets. So they pulled all this together and we find a very interesting picture of a group that no longer exists, at least in the way it was, but the kind of, you know, the, the legacy in which we live in now, it's kind of like having a, a star baseball person who, you know, does all this awesome stuff, but you never see it. And only years later do you feel the impact. That's probably a very horrible analogy, and I don't know why I'm talking about sports, but that's, you know, it's what it is. Um, you would kind of be more familiar with the children of Appen than you would be the group itself. As I said, because most likely the group no longer exists. And this is what happens, and we talk about this a lot, when it comes to these malicious actor groups. They change, they grow, they split. They lose people, they gain new people. And sometimes, you know, just like a regular corp corporation, they rebrand. Um, and this group, Appen, was actually a New, new Delhi-based group. They started around 2009, so it's not ancient history, but it's history. And they were a for-hire group. You went to their My Commando website and you set a target up and they did the dirty work for you. Now, they targeted businesses, business executives, politicians, any kind of high-value individual, government, military uh, officials, anyone, worldwide. Now, from what they've learned, the clients tend to be private investigators, detectives, governments. Governments always want to know more information about other people. Uh, corporate clients, um, sometimes corporate clients who were in litigation battles with other clients so they could find out information before, you know, it was exposed. Uh, and a lot of this came from the U.S., U.K., Israel, India, Switzerland, and several other countries. This is, I mean, we, you, you kind of think of this as your modern hacker group, but this is, this is strictly like they weren't doing things on their own. They were, they were for hire. They they attacked only when uh, someone had pointed in their direction. And some of the interesting things about this was they tended to ask their clients to set up the infrastructure for them. So they kind of, yeah, we'll go after it, but you set up the, the, the infrastructure, the architecture that we're going to use in this attack. And they operated kind of quietly, not totally unknown, but they weren't as big as probably they should have been. Um, and they just kept operating and, and, and they're not a big thing. Um, they, they had leaked private emails. They derailed a lucrative casino deal for a small native American tribe in New York. They, um, got onto a network for a Zurich, Zurich based consulting company, trying to bring the 2012 soccer world cup to Australia. Like they, they're not small, they're, they're pretty big, but they always kind of 
they kept their, they kept their knowledge there. They had people who just knew how to hack and they used outside third parties, including their clients to acquire and manage that infrastructure, which if you think about it, makes it more nimble than most other hacker groups out there now who have a centralized command and control. They probably share similar resources with um, other groups. Uh, we talk about, you know, command and controls being shared by other groups. Last week, we talked about one um, where um, Lace Tempest was using the CLOP ransomware um, infrastructure. It wasn't a major part of the story, but that's this happens all the time there. So they had other people to manage their network. They just, they just did their job. And as I said, they no longer exist for lots of different reasons. But the groups that splintered from them the best we understand it are still out there. They're still hack for higher enterprises, especially um, out of right now, uh, India, Russia, and the United Arab Emirates. Those seem to be the places where these groups live or work out of, you know, and they're, they're very skilled at what they do, but it's like, you know, like I talk about something like this is just a business for them. They're not doing anything because it's anything personal. There's no uh, greater cause to it, like a hacktivist group. This is strictly, you give me money, you point me at the target, you set up and design my my architecture for me, and point me at the target and, and I'll get you what you want. And it's interesting because, as I said, the full, the full understanding didn't come for many years later. And, and, and think about that when, when we talk about a lot of our stories. We hear a lot of the big, fancy, you know, groups that make a big bang. Who announce they've hacked someone. Who have these big ransomwares. But there are so, smaller groups who operate just like a business. They don't necessarily... You don't know who they are unless you need them. And they're the ones who... You know, unless you're a victim of them, they probably don't know. And it's kind of interesting to think that you know this whole underground thing can go unknown by so many people now i'm sure if you were a victim of theirs you know all about them but most people didn't and the full picture is only coming to picture years after looking at a whole bunch of non-public sources meaning you know either you know security researchers gave them access to logs or i don't know how they got them but they're not stuff that's available to me and you normally unless you have a job in which you have sources of internet traffic that I don't know about, but I'm going to assume you're most likely like me and don't have access to these kind of things. So it's interesting to see in retrospect, um, the picture of this and one day, who knows, maybe there's going to be a cybersecurity history. Um, and this group will probably be amongst them for our third story. And there's a lot of debate internally by me, what should be my third and fourth story this week? Cause I think both are very kind of important. I'd like to usually end the show on the more, poignant one but the one story i picked i think is because the message will resonate a little longer and we'll get to that when we get to the fourth story but for the third story um what is probably the tool you hear most about when you're talking to security companies at this point and i guarantee you all you just said artificial intelligence or machine learning in fact, I don't think I've heard from a vendor recently who hasn't tried to sell me some portion of this. And, you know, I, I think in the security realm, I'm, I'm, I'm 
cautiously optimistic about AI. I don't think it's going to be everything everyone thinks it's going to be, but I, I, I do like it as a kind of an extension of machine learning. But that's not what we're here to talk about. So the Hunter, H-U-N-T-R, bug bounty program in August of 2023 uh, kind of brought this about, and I just saw the news story. Um, they kind of say, look, there's a lot of vulnerabilities in some of these AI slash ML applications that are being run and people need to kind of be aware of this and the article that i found kind of highlights three of them h2o3 ml flow and ray and i want to talk about the vulnerabilities they found not that they are ending but these are kind of things you should start thinking about as you approach any kind of ai or ml tools that you may be implementing in your own organization or maybe by extension that you bring in as part of a third party. So H2O3 is a low code machine learning platform. It's for the creation and deployment of machine learning models via web interface, meaning you have an easy display web interface. You kind of tell what to do. It helps you design the machine learning model. The problem with this, uh, one of the major things that I saw uh, from the article that kind of strike me as odd is the default configuration of H2O3 has no authentication to the internal network. It's only meant to be exposed to the internal network, but anyone on that network by the default configuration could access and do evil things to that, that machine learning AI tool. And one of the things they said is, look, attackers could supply Java objects to it so that it incorporates it as part of a code that it builds for your machine learning, which obviously could be a problem. If someone can say, hey, look, this code is great for when you're doing machine learning interface models. And then it does it. Obviously, you would never know because you're doing a web interface, so you're probably not a, a heavy coder. Um, but this is stuff that could happen. It also had a CVE attached to it, CVE 2023-6016, which is a remote code execution, which could allow the takeover of the server, steal any models that are created, credentials and other data. It also had a local file include flaw, which was CVE 2023-6038, a cross-site scripting bug, CVE 2023-6013, and a high severity S3 bucket takeover vulnerability, CVE 2023-6017. These can kind of show you where in normal applications they would be concerning. But in these particular kind, you can kind of sneak code in that unless you're a coder, you may not totally catch. And I said, that's not the only one. There's the ML flow which is an open source platform for the management of end-to-end -end machine learning lifecycle. They had two CVEs, both with a CVSS score of 10 out of 10. It's CVE 2023-6018 and 2023-6015. And these allow for an unauthenticated attacker to overwrite any kind of file on the operating system and an arbitrary file inclusion 
which is tracked as CVE 2023-1177, which means you can arbitrarily include a file in somewhere or bypass the authentication methods with vulnerability CVE 2023-6014. And finally, the Ray project, which is an open source framework for the distribution or for distributed training of machine learning models. Once again, lacks default authentication at setup. It has a code injection flaw in um, the CPU profile format perimeter tracked as CVE 2023-6019. Once again, with a CVSS score of 10 out of 10, which fancy word for it can compromise the entire system. And it has a vulnerability which allows a user to read any files on the system as a whole. And there are two CVEs tracked with that one, CVE 2023-6020 and CVE 2023-6021. And the problem with this is there's a rush to get this stuff out. AI has all of a sudden become this big thing in the tech world. And I'll say, yeah, people have known about it, but like the active push from all these companies to create a machine learning and AI model to sell and add to their, their software um, can lead to some problems. And when things allow user input, you have to be careful of what the output could be. And machine learning and AI, garbage in, garbage out. But malicious stuff in, malicious stuff out is a lot more dangerous. Um, so just think about that when it comes to your tools. I'm not saying steer away from them. They are the buzz that everyone's going for. And I think it has a way to go up. But the biggest concern for me is is how these tools can be exploited and used against your network or the products that come out of these AIs. So just get a full understanding before you push AI systems into your environment because not everyone should access them. And if you can't do, for some reason, authentication, firewall it. I say only these four computers can talk to it. Whatever you have to do, but make sure... Um, that you guard the data being built by these things and they're learning from because they are the stuff that's going to come out of it. And as I said, some of these are just as simple as taking over systems. And there's a dozen vulnerabilities just with those three apps. Um, and I'm not saying that those apps deserve any more scrutiny. These are just the ones that were highlighted in the article. But it goes to show you there should be a, at least a little thought into, you know, the launching of these things on your network to make sure they're done as safe as possible and that you update as often as possible. But that's always what I recommend. For our final story, and as I said, there was a lot of back and forth on me on which one is the poignant story at the end. Uh, and this one is only because the message is going to be something you're going to hear me repeat over the next couple of weeks. Uh, because we're getting into, you know, this week is Thanksgiving, and then we get into the holiday season, and then you have New Year's. So... A lot of people prey on your kindness in something that's called a charity attack. And we've seen these around any kind of major disaster that has gone on. These have been going on for quite a, quite a few number of years. I remember them going all the way back. But the reason I say holidays is because you'll get these things like... Um, Salvation Army or Red Cross or any of these ones that kind of collect money around the holidays. And it's a similar kind of attack. It's it's to prey on your 
goodwill, your jolly tiding, whatever you want to call it. This one is, is preying on uh, people who are sympathetic to the stuff that's going on in Israel and Palestine. And I'm not going to say one way or the other, but I'm just, here's what the attack is. They are exploiting the ongoing events in Gaza and Israel. They've targeted uh, right now about 212 individuals, about 88 different organizations. And they're using sympathy for the children in Palestine to get you to donate fraudulently to them. And they are doing a whole bunch to kind of pretend they are legitimate. Uh, they set up a website. One of the websites is uh, help-palestine.com. They have links to news articles about how horrible it's going to be. All of this in an attempt to kind of, in your mind, legitimize it, this website. And that's all it is. It, it's just, it's a show like any other social engineering attempt. Just to make you feel, and you see the news articles, and you're like, oh yeah, that's that's right. And then you, you, you want to go to, if you're so inclined, to, to donate to them. The one red flag I would say immediately for me is they're asking for cryptocurrency do donations. They're not asking for dollars. They're not asking for your credit card information. This is all around cryptocurrency. And they have um, donations uh, ranging from about $100 to $5,000. And look, they're not just stu stuck in one uh, kind of crypto. They have wallet addresses for Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum. Who knows by the time the story is released, maybe more. And once again, this is all just a social engineering attack. They're exploiting heightened emotional state of people. They, they want that emotional response from you because when you're emotional, you may not be logical. They, they use emotionally charged language. They, they brutally describe the cha challenges of children faced in Palestine. They're using inclusive terms. It's not, will you donate? It's, we need to donate. Stuff like that. Like, these are all typical social engineering attempts. They're, 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 they're really trying to exploit you by getting you to feel and not think. And this group who's doing this is not just using one website. They're using multiple tactics. Uh, some of the things are like spoofing legitimate email addresses. Um, they pretend to be goodwill, uh, wealth management. They uh, pretend to be an India-based stock brokerage. They opened up non-existent domains. They're using all of this to kind of use your trust in some of these brands and some of these institutions to sidestep thought. But as I said, the... Number one thing that should be ding, ding, ding in your head is the, is the cryptocurrency portion of it. Because once you uh, send someone cryptocurrency, there's no way to get it back unless they give it to you back. So the reason I made this the last story is because we'll, I'm sure we'll be talking about this as we go on. Holiday scams are going to become a big thing. Not that they aren't every year, but this is the time of the year for them to start ramping up for phishing emails to to pretend to be gift cards and, you know, get your way. Like this is, this is the social, the social engineering, uh, holiday season for lack of a better term. They're going to do everything they can. They're going to make you feel bad about orphans. They're going to make you feel, uh, happy that you won a $500 gift card for a raffle that you don't remember entering. This is the tactic that you're going to see explicitly used this time of year. It happens all year. Don't get me wrong. 
all through the year this happens or any kind of ma a, a major disaster happens. But I would check multiple internet sources, find out if this is a legitimate charity before you start donating money to it. Because you, you obviously want to help this or any other cause. And you're a good person for that, but obviously they're not a good person for tricking you into that. So you want to make sure that if you're in a good mood or if you're in a good place to share with others, you're making sure that you donate to a proper charity. And you avoid things that seem like an instant gratification because stuff like this is going to keep happening. It's going to happen a lot during the holiday season. And this will be, this won't be the last we talk about this. It'll be something we constantly warn people about. Um, but anytime, anytime, anytime there's a natural disaster, take half a day and then Google the disaster and then fraud. And you almost always find someone who's immediately on top of that to exploit it. By the time you know about it, someone else knows about it and they're not a nice person and they will take advantage of that. I guarantee it to do you. So just make sure you're guarded. And as always, cryptocurrency should be definitely a red flag. But even if they ask for your credit card, still take your time or your cash or any other method of payment. Take your time doesn't have to be done right away because that's the number one tool of the social engineer is to make you rush and not think your way through it. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening to the show. Don't forget, you can find my show notes for the show, including the articles this came from on our website, cybersecuritynewsbyte.com. You can find more about me and my website, jimguckin.com, or you can email me or talk to me at me, me at jimguckin.com. Please make sure you are guarded through this holiday season. And if you work in IT or information security, remember, holiday season is a prime time for attacks. Make sure you stay safe online, and we'll talk again next week. You've been listening to the Cybersecurity News Byte with Jim Guckin. Learn more about our show at cybersecuritynewsbyte.com. 